You're listening to Policy Currents, a weekly podcast from RAND. I'm Deanna Lee. And I'm Evan Banks. Every Friday, we bring you new insights from RAND's latest research and commentary. It's January 12th. A new RAND study finds that the cost of treating patients hospitalized with COVID-19 increased dramatically over the first two years of the pandemic. During the early weeks of the public health crisis, the average cost of hospital treatment for a COVID patient was about $10,000. But this number rose to roughly $13,000 in March 2022. This increase was five times faster than the rate of medical inflation during the same period. And when extrapolated to the more than 6 million COVID hospitalizations in the United States during the first two years of the pandemic, it suggests that the cost of caring for these patients could have reached $70 billion. What explains this rapid rise in costs? For one, The way doctors treated patients evolved as we learned about COVID-19, says lead author Candice Kapanos. Then, once the vaccines became available, the makeup of patients entering hospitals began to change. Importantly, this study looked at the direct costs of providing care to patients, not the amount billed to insurers or the amounts paid. These estimates help paint a clearer picture of the burden that COVID put on hospitals. Our findings could also help efforts to improve public health readiness in the future. Many state and local election offices have contingency plans for power outages, road closures, and shortages of poll workers. But as the effects of climate change increase, U.S. elections are also more likely to experience disruptions from hurricanes, droughts, dust storms, earthquakes, volcanic eruptions, and wildfires. Rand's Quentin Hodgson says that preparation for such crises should be happening now. Quote, election officials must always be prepared for a larger scale and level of impact. Their planning should include how to respond to mega-events, not just localized issues. So what exactly can be done? To start, states could review and revise the emergency powers that governors and election directors can exercise after a disaster. Consider what happened when the pandemic hit in 2020. There were many legal challenges and disputes between governors and legislators, particularly in states where power was split between Democrats and Republicans. A similar scenario could play out in the case of a large-scale natural disaster. And in this era of hyperpartisanship, it would be wise to hash out the details now. Further, when a natural disaster strikes, many voters will not have anticipated the potential need to request an absentee ballot or vote early. So states should examine whether they have sufficient alternative means for voters to cast their ballots early, whether by mail or in person. Without robust plans in place, election officials will be scrambling to communicate how and where displaced voters can cast ballots, or receive them if vote-by-mail or absentee ballots are available. Finally, Congress could take action to help prepare for climate-related disruptions to our democratic processes. For instance, legislators might see how funds from the Help America Vote Act could be allocated to states and local jurisdictions to bulk up their ability to respond to disasters. 
the effects of climate change are just one more thing to add to the list of threats to U.S. elections. There are concerns over cybersecurity, foreign interference, artificial intelligence, and more. These all deserve continued attention, Hodgson notes, but the increase in the number and intensity of natural disasters is no less a grave risk. For decades, cities across the U.S. have implemented policies that encourage landlords to evict tenants who are involved with the criminal justice system. As of last week, California became the first state to ban these so-called crime-free housing policies. And according to Rand's Max Griswold, more states should follow suit. Why? Well, a recent RAND study led by Griswold found that crime-free housing policies do not reduce crime. Further, these policies target low-income and minority renters and lead to more evictions. This can have deeply harmful consequences, potentially leading to an increase in crime. The RAND study, focused on California, found that city blocks with apartments certified as, quote, crime-free saw 21% more evictions than blocks without so-called crime-free housing. People who are evicted struggle to find housing again, and tenants removed from public housing are prohibited from receiving housing assistance. This can lead to more homelessness and desperation. Evictions also cause disproportionate housing insecurity among children, more unemployment, additional use of emergency room resources, and accidental drug and alcohol deaths. Crime-free housing policies can backfire in other ways, too. For instance, these policies treat 911 calls as an indicator of criminal activity, which creates a perverse incentive. For fear of being evicted, Tenants don't call authorities when they need them. This may be especially harmful to victims of domestic violence, who may hesitate to seek help from police lest they lose their housing. Similarly, these policies can also dissuade tenants from seeking medical aid during drug overdoses or mental health crises. And finally, authorities tend to enforce these policies selectively, with low-income, multifamily properties bearing the brunt. To sum it up, crime-free housing policies and the evictions they cause are at best an ineffective means of preventing crime. At worst, they're a harmful form of discrimination that leads to more crime and homelessness. Ending these policies could make all our communities safer, Griswold says. In the first year of Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine, 66,618 private houses were destroyed. 8,746 kilometers of major roadway were torn up by tanks and explosives, and 434 schools were turned to rubble. These and other damages amount to an estimated $150 billion in damage to physical infrastructure alone. The numbers are grim, but they provide an idea of just how massive the reconstruction effort in Ukraine will have to be. And while it's unclear when the fighting will stop, now is the time to start thinking about what recovery will look like, and how to make it happen. 
To understand what it will take to rebuild Ukraine, RAND researchers examined decades of past recovery efforts, from post-World War II Europe to post-Hurricane Katrina New Orleans. They identified a few keys to success. First things first, where will the money come from? Western countries have frozen roughly $300 billion in Russian assets. But it's not at all clear that seizing those assets and using them for Ukraine's recovery would be legal under international law. The rebuilding of Central Europe after the fall of the Berlin Wall might provide a solid precedent. In that case, some U.S. aid came in the form of enterprise funds that invested in small and medium-sized companies. Those funds revitalized banks and rebuilt industries to help the countries receiving the aid, such as Poland and Hungary, eventually join the single market of the European Union. Reconstruction will require coordinated effort between the U.S. and Europe. Here's how the responsibilities should be shared to help ensure success. The European Union should take the lead, with Ukraine setting the priorities on managing the economic recovery. The U.S. should lead on questions of security, and Ukraine should appoint an independent inspector general to ensure recovery funds are well spent and the process is transparent. Rebuilding Ukraine might be the largest recovery project in modern history, with far-reaching impacts. Quote, Building a secure, economically prosperous Ukraine that is fully integrated into European institutions will be a capstone achievement, says Brands Charles Reese beneficial on both sides of the Atlantic, and a boon for global security and Western democracy. That's it for this week's episode. If you'd like to learn more about what we discussed today, check out the show notes at rand.org slash podcast. We'll see you next week. RAND is a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision-making through research and analysis.